This is the first letter that Paul wrote in the New Testament, and it's addressed to the youngest church in the New Testament. Now, normally Paul would have stayed longer in Thessalonica, but he didn't have a choice. He was driven out of town after only three weeks. And so he has to disciple these young believers by mail. And one of the issues that he's very concerned about is the opposition that is still in Thessalonica. They were not satisfied to simply run Paul out of town. They followed him to Berea, and they ran him out of that town. And then they came back to Thessalonica, and they turned their sights on the young believers there. And their assault was twofold. They attacked these young believers physically. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 14, it says that they were suffering at the hands of their countrymen. And in chapter 1 of 2 Thessalonians in verse 4, Paul speaks about all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. And so their physical persecution was great, but they also attacked them spiritually. You say, well, how did they do that? Well, option number one would have been to attack the validity of their conversion. But chapter 1 and verse 7 tells us that their conversion had been so dramatic that they had become an example throughout Greece. And so they saw no opening there. And so option number two would have been to attack the validity of the message, but chapter 1 and verse 5 says they received it in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And so there was no opening there. And so they resorted to option three, and that was to attack the messenger. And so they came to those young believers and they said, you know, Paul doesn't really care about you. He's only using you. He's just a shyster. He's just in it for the money. And so because Paul was being criticized, he uses the first part of chapter 2 to defend himself. And notice what he says in verse 1. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. Now the word vain means empty. Paul is saying our coming was not a waste of time. Our coming was not fruitless. This word empty or vain can be translated empty-handed. It's translated that way in Mark chapter 12 and verse 3. And if we translate it that way here, Paul is saying, I didn't come to you empty-handed, as the opposition says, trying to get something from you. I came with full hands to give you blessings. And then Paul prefaces that in verse 1 by saying, you yourselves know. Notice the middle of verse 2. As you know. Verse 5 in the middle. As you know. Verse 9. For you recall. Verse 10. You are witnesses. Verse 11. Just as you know. Paul says, you remember. Think back. Before you buy into this criticism, look at the record. You don't need anybody telling you about us. You know, you are witnesses. You saw and you heard. You know, one of the most important things for Christians to do is remember. Because it's Satan's job to make us forget. Forget God's grace. Forget God's mercy. Forget answered prayer. Forget the cross. That's why Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And on this occasion, Paul writes to these young believers and he says, there are some things that I want you to remember about me. And, he can, and we can summarize those th things under three headings. We can see his motives, 
his methods, and his mission. Now, this is a significant passage because in this passage, we get a very personal conversation with the Apostle Paul about how and why he did ministry. And what we get in these first 12 verses is a, is a look into Paul's pastor's heart. And it really gives us a pattern for each of us to follow in our ministry for the Lord. First of all, he tells us about his motives in verses 2 to 6. And we can see five motives here. And instead of really focusing on what his motives were, he really tells us what his motives were not. And so we see five things here that did not drive the Apostle Paul. Number one is comfort in verse 2. Now, a lot of pastors today are motivated by comfort. A lot of pastors accept invitations on the basis of where they are going to be pampered the most. I went up to a, a well-known speaker one time and asked him about coming here to speak. And he said, well, <clears throat> you'll have to talk to my booking agent. And so I went to his booking agent. And he told me the minimum size auditorium, the minimum size honorarium, the minimum size travel expenses, and the minimum hotel accommodations. I felt like I was talking to the agent for a rock star. Was Paul motivated by comfort? Was Paul influenced when he made his travel agenda by where it was going to be easiest and where he was going to have the greatest amenities? Well, look at verse 2. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. Paul had come to Thessalonica from Philippi. In Acts chapter 16, we're told that in Philippi, Paul and Silas had their robes torn off. They had been beaten with rods. They had been thrown in prison. Their feet had been shackled. And when they were finally released, they were asked to leave town. And so, so still bearing the, the wounds of Philippi, Paul comes to Thessalonica. And what does he find in Thessalonica? Well, look at the last two words in verse 2 much opposition. Paul leaves Philippi, still bearing the scars. He comes to Thessalonica, and he runs into a buzzsaw. Now, if Paul's motivation had been his own comfort, what would he have done? Well, all he would have had to do was water down his message or go undercover or run for cover. But instead, Paul says, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amidst much opposition. When it came to motivation, comfort was the farthest thing from Paul's heart. In fact, he gives his credentials for being a servant of Christ in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And it's interesting, he doesn't mention any of his degrees. He doesn't mention of any, any of the great big conferences that he had spoken at. Here's what he says. He says, I have had more labors, more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death, Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. 
a night and day I spent in the deep, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And then he says, apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure upon me of concern for all the churches. Now, does that sound like a fellow who's in it for the comfort? Paul didn't have a whole lot of patience with people who were in it for the comfort. On his first missionary journey, you remember John Mark went along with him. And they got out into the middle of ministry and... and, uh, things got tough and and John Mark said you know I didn't know ministry was difficult I, I didn't know people would actually persecute us and, and I didn't know that people would actually talk about us I thought you just went out and spoke and got an honorarium and moved on and so John Mark quit and went home so it comes time for the second missionary journey and John Mark steps forward and says I want to go and what does Paul say you're not going with me Because, you see, ministry is not about comfort. Second motivation is perversion in verse 3. Paul's motivation was not to lead people astray, either doctrinally or morally. Now, there are plenty of preachers today who are not committed to truth. They are only committed to exploiting people. And that was very common in the first century. In the Roman Empire, there were many cults and philosophies. In a given city, you might see magicians, astrologers, fortune tellers, false teachers, all vying for the attention of people. And Paul's critics had taken him and thrown him in with that group. And so he says in verse 3, For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. Three accusations were made against him, and he addresses them here. Number one, he says, he didn't speak from error. Now, that word refers here to his message. He says, I am not like the cult leaders who were self-deluded. I am not like the cult leaders who are sincerely wrong. I am not like the cult leaders who are leading you into error. And to confirm that, if you slide down to verse 4, Paul says... But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Paul says the gospel which we speak is not something that we made up. Paul says, you know, we weren't together one evening and had a lot of time on our hands and said, hey, why don't we come up with a new religion? No, he says it did not originate with me. If it had, it might be error, but he says it originated with God. He entrusted it to us. It's not error. And then secondly, he says he didn't speak from impurity. That's a word that, when it's used in the New Testament, is almost always used with sexual sin. And sexual immorality was a feature of many of the cults of that day. In fact, most of the pagan temples had ritual prostitution. And we still find that today in many cults. We find cult leaders who are propagating children with multiple women. This is an accusation they made against Paul. Now, if you remember, when Paul went to Philippi, the church there started out of a prayer meeting of women down by the river. It may well have been that the insinuation was, what's he doing with all those women? He's no different than the cult leaders. 
And then the third thing he says is that he did not speak by way of deceit. And the word deceit means trickery. The first word, error, talks about someone who unknowingly leads others to believe something that is false. They are deluded themselves. This word deceit speaks about someone who knowingly leads others astray. He's a shyster. He's a swindler. In fact, this word deceit is a fishing term. It's, it's the word used for our word bait. Fishermen are very deceitful. They, they take a nice plump worm and they stick it on a cold, sharp steel hook and they deceive the fish. Fish come thinking they're getting lunch and they become lunch. False teachers do that same thing. They take something very attractive and they hold it out in front of people and then they ensnare them. And Paul says, that is not true of me. I did not come in perversion. I did not come deluded myself, preaching error, and I did not come deceiving you either sexually or any other way. And then the third motive is popularity in verse 4. You know, we live in a day when there's a Christian smorgasbord. People say, well, I like this kind of church and that kind of music. I like good teaching. No, I like loud preaching. I like long messages. No, I like short messages. I like to have my toes stepped on. No, I like to have my ears tickled. And as a preacher, there is a temptation to want to hone your message to the popular multitude. There's always a little voice there saying, don't tell them the full truth because there's some big contributors out there that might be offended. And there's always that little voice that says, tell people what they want to hear because you might lose the crowds. And there's always a voice there that says, you better take a public opinion poll because the bottom line is pleasing people. That's a prime motivation in the 20th century, and it was in the first century as well. And Paul says in verse 4, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our heart. Paul was not a people pleaser. If Paul had been a people pleaser, he would have stayed in his influential position in Judaism rather than going around the Roman Empire stirring up animosity in every city he went to. If Paul had been a people pleaser, he wouldn't have cuts on his back and bruises on his ankles. If Paul had been a people pleaser, he would have stopped preaching the gospel long before he got arrested in Rome and had his head cut off. And then he adds in verse 5, For we never came with flattering speech, as you know. Flattering speech is when you tell someone what you know isn't true because you know they want to hear it. And Paul says, I never told people what they wanted to hear. I told people what they needed to hear. Because you see, Paul knew that the real measure of ministry is not in numbers. Jesus preached for three and a half years. He drew thousands of people in the crowds. Most of the people in the crowds were there for free food, to see a miracle, or to get healed. In fact, when Jesus got done, how many people really stuck through his ministry? Well, if you look in Acts chapter 1, there was a prayer meeting there on the day of Pentecost waiting for Jesus' promise, and there were 120 people there praying. Numbers are not the measure. 
of ministry. In fact, if you are going to be a servant of Christ, you cannot desire to please men. Paul said in Galatians 1.10, if I am still trying to please men, I cannot be a bondservant of Christ. You can't do both. Fourth motivation is money in verse 5. Notice the end of that verse. Nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Someone contacted me this week and said, our pastor came to the board and said he's got a six-figure offer from another church, and if we don't match it, he's leaving. What do you think we ought to do? And I said, I would help him pack. Because if his calling to ministry is based on how much he gets, he's in it for the wrong reason. Paul said in Philippians 4.12 that at times he got by with humble means and at times he knew how to live in prosperity. But that was never the driving factor in his ministry. He never went where the money was. In fact, we'll find out in verse 9 that when he came here to Thessalonica, he worked himself so that he wouldn't have to take any money from the new believers. Fifth motivation is fame. You know, we live in a day when preachers can become pretty famous. With TV and radio and print media, we have preachers who become celebrities. Sometimes I go to a pastor's conference and, and I'm listening to a speaker and I hear something and I want to ask him a question about it and I go up afterwards to try to talk to him and there are masses of people gathered around him, but they're not there asking him questions. They're there so he can sign autographs and, and have their picture taken with him. And I'm thinking, there's something wrong with this picture. Somebody came up to me one time and said, showed me their Bible and said, look who signed my, look who autographed my Bible. And I looked down, there was a well-known preacher there. And I thought, that's strange. I mean, usually you get the, the author to sign his book. Well, in the first century, Paul was the closest thing to a celebrity. He was known throughout the Christian world, but that was not his motivation. Look at verse 6. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others. Paul was not in it to make a name for himself. He was not in it for accolades, rewards, honor, prestige. In fact, if God had called Paul to remain in Antioch and work with the church there in obscurity all his life, he would have worked just as hard because he was not motivated by fame. You say, well, what was he seeking? If he wasn't motivated by comfort, perversion, popularity, money, fame, what was he motivated by? Well, look back in verse 4. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. There are two motives in that verse. One is his privilege. He says God approved him and entrusted him with the gospel. What an honor. You know, whenever I get a little bit down, I just have to remind myself that God has given me the greatest blessing you can have in this world. And that is, number one, he has not only saved me, but he has given me the privilege to do what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 8, to tell people about the unsearchable riches of Christ. There is no greater privilege than that 
in this world. And that's what motivated Paul. He was motivated by his privilege, but also he was motivated by his responsibility. Paul says at the end of that verse that one day he will stand before the Lord and the thing that he desires most is to please him. He wants to hear that joyful statement, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Now notice, he's not trying to please God to get something out of God because he says, I'm already accepted. He's doing something for God because God has already blessed him so richly. And that's the same motivation that motivated the Lord Jesus. He said in John 8, 29, I always do the things that are pleasing to my Father. Well, those are the motives of a pastor's heart. And then secondly, we see the methods in verses 6 to 11. Now, you can't see motives, but you can see methods. Sometimes I say to my wife, honey, I didn't mean that. And she says, but you did it. You see, what I do speaks louder than what I meant to do. And now Paul switches from talking about why he did it to what he did. And in verse 6 at the end he says, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. Paul says, if I were going to use you, I would have asserted my authority. You see, I could, I could come up here and say, I'm the pastor of this church. And my daddy started it back in the 60s, and most of you weren't here. In fact, I don't think any of you were here. In fact, most of you probably weren't even saved. So I've got all the authority, and you better listen to me. See, Paul is saying, I could have used my apostolic clout, but he didn't do that. In fact, he did the very opposite of that. What was his method? He tells us two things about his method, and he uses two analogies. He says, number one, he was like a mother, and number two, he was like a father. First of all, he was like a mother in verses 7 to 9. He says, verse 7, but we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. What's a nursing mother like? Three characteristics. Paul says, number one, gentle. You ever watch a nursing mother with her child? She holds her child and she pats her child and she cuddles her child and she gives that child her full attention. She never lets that child out of her sight. There's a little whimper. She's there. She is predisposed to meet that child's needs. And Paul says that's the way we were in Thessalonica. You know, sometimes we get the idea that Paul was rough and tough. He was kind of the John Wayne figure. But here he says speaking out of his pastor's heart, that he was like a nursing mother with the Thessalonian Christians. He patted them, and he loved them, and he cuddled them. He was there with a diaper in one hand and a bottle in the other, waiting for their every need. Paul was gentle. He tenderly cared for them. Now, he, he could be bold, as he says in verse 2, in the midst of oppos opposition, but he could also be gentle in the midst of need. We cannot hammer people over the head with our Bibles. When somebody has a need, we can't say, well, here, listen to this tape. When people have needs, we need to gently, lovingly, tenderly get beside them and minister to them. And then second characteristic that Paul showed that was like a mother was he was sacrificial in verse 8. Having thus a fond affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not 
not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become very dear to us. What characterizes a mother? She gives. My daughter gave my wife a great compliment the other day. She said, Mom, you always give up things for me. And then she began to list some. She said, you know, when I, when I say I want to change the channel and you're watching something, you always say, well, I wasn't really watching that. And whenever I want to go somewhere, you always drop what you're doing and you take me. And whenever there's only one ice cream bar left, you always say, you don't want it. And then she turned to me and she said, not like Dad. You know, he'll wrestle me for the last ice cream bar. You see, Paul is saying that he was that way. He didn't just give the people at Thessalonica the gospel. He gave them his very life. That's why I'm not real high on gospel tracks. I know that God can use gospel tracks, but when you leave gospel tracks around, there's no life attached to that. And Paul says, I gave you the gospel, but I also imparted to you my very self. God didn't just tell them about God. He showed them how God loves by giving himself to them. And then the third characteristic of a nursing mother is that she's hardworking. Verse 9, For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. When does a nursing mother punch out on the clock? She doesn't. She's on call 24 hours a day. If it's feeding time at 3 a.m., she's there. If it's diaper change at 5 a.m., she's there. If she's got to rock the baby to sleep at 2 in the afternoon, she's there. Babies are demanding, and so are spiritual babies. Paul worked hard. He says, you recall our labor and our hardship. And Paul worked long. He said he worked night and day. When he wasn't preaching, he was making tents. Why? So he wouldn't have to take money from them. And so he was like a mother. But secondly, he says he was like a father in verses 10 and 11. And he points out two ways he was like a father. Number one, he was an example, verse 10. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved toward you believers. One thing that you don't have to teach your children is to follow their father. I've got a picture in my office of my daughter when she was about six years old and she's got all of my clothes on. Why? Because she wants to be like dad. And that's what kids look for in their father. They look for an example. And Paul says, we were an example to you just like a good father. And what was that example? He says, we behaved devoutly. That word means separated unto God. It's a word that means single-minded. When they looked at Paul, they could see that his single-minded drive was to honor the Lord. And then secondly, he says, we lived uprightly. That's a life that's characterized by righteousness. Paul didn't talk one thing on Sunday and do something else on Monday. And then thirdly, he says, we were blameless. Now, he's not claiming sinlessness here. He later says in 1 Timothy 1.15 that he was the chief of sinners. What he means by this word is that he was honest. When he sinned, he didn't try to cover it up. He confessed it. 
And so like a father, he was an example to them. He was real and he was genuine. But the second way he was like a father, not only was he an example, but he was an encourager. Look at verse 11. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. You know, there's a special power that God has given to fathers. And it's the power of encouragement. When you give it to your kids, they get great energy from that. And when you withhold it from your kids, they are frustrated and unfulfilled. Christianity Today did a survey, a survey several years ago to find out the three most common things fathers say to their kids. Number one, I'm too tired. Number two, we don't have the money. And number three, keep quiet. Now, none of those is very encouraging. Kids need to constantly be reminded of who they are and what they need to be doing. Heard about a polar bear cub who asked his father, said, Dad, am I 100% polar bear? And he said, well, of course you are. Both of my parents were 100% polar bear, which makes me 100% polar bear. Both of your, your mother's parents were 100% polar bear, which makes her 100% polar bear. That makes you 100% polar bear. Why do you ask? And the little cub said, because I'm freezing out here. Children need encouragement. And so like a father, Paul was, notice verse 11, exhorting them. That word means to call them alongside, to show them how to do it. And then he was encouraging them. That is, he was rooting them on when they did what was right. And then the last word is imploring. That word means begging. And it has the idea when they don't do what's right, you get next to them and you beg them to get back into line. And if you'll notice, Paul says he did this to each one of you. It was personal. Paul was like a father, teaching and coaching his children. And what was Paul exhorting and encouraging and imploring them to do? Well, that's the third point, his mission in verse 12. He says, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul's mission was that they walk worthy. Now, I want you to notice something in this verse, and it's very exciting. Paul's goal was not that they walk worthy enough to get into the kingdom. His goal was not that they walk worthy enough to get into glory. They have already gotten there. He says God has already called you into his kingdom. He's already called you into his glory. That's all about grace. Paul says, I want you to walk like people who have been called into the kingdom and called into glory. You see, the Christian life is not trying to act like somebody you're not. The Christian life is becoming who you are. You are God's child. You are in God's kingdom. You are destined for His glory. So walk like it. And so there's a look at Paul's pastor's heart. The motive? To please God. The method? Like a mother, gently caring, giving your life, working day and night. Like a father, setting an example and encouraging them. And then the mission that they might walk worthy of the God who has called them into his kingdom and glory.